lately. I've been trying to prepare to preach this morning, and every time I was trying to get on my work, Ryan would interrupt me and ask me if I'd seen uh, Megan's dress at the wedding, what did I think of the flowers, weren't the horses lovely, Uh, had I videoed the whole thing, because he had, and he watched it over and over again. And so, so just for Ryan, because I know he, he just loved it. He just loved the wedding. We're just going to watch a few highlights of last Saturday's wedding. Thanks, Mark. So 600 guests at the ceremony, 100,000 people outside, 2 billion people watching on TV. And the whole thing allegedly costing around about £35 million. Just your average wedding, really. Just your, Very similar to my wedding. We've, we've all experienced wedding ceremonies, either because we've been married ourselves or because we've been at a wedding, I guess, family, perhaps friends. But it's probably true to say that none of us have ever experienced a wedding quite like that one. And nor are we ever likely to, probably. Uh, unlike you, I didn't get a, an invite, or maybe you did get an invite, I don't know. I didn't get an invite to the wedding, and we're probably never likely to get an invite to a royal wedding. We're looking today in the Bible at a wedding ceremony. A rather bizarre wedding ceremony, it has to be said. It's equally unlike any kind of wedding you're ever likely to go to, I would imagine, particularly in this country. Uh, We're going to look at the marriage of a man named Jacob to his bride, Rachel. And Prince Harry last week married one lady. Jacob ended up marrying two ladies in the space of a week. And one of the reasons that we're unlikely to ever experience a wedding like the royal wedding is because we're not royal, we don't mix in those circles, we're unlikely to ever get invited. And there are two main reasons why Jacob's wedding will probably seem so bizarre to us and we're unlikely to get invited to one like it. Firstly, because he lived in the Middle East, which even today has a very different marriage culture to ours. It's not wrong, it's just different, different kind of wedding culture to the one that we have here in the UK generally. And secondly, because Jacob, who we're looking at today, actually lived way back... 2,000 years BC. So that's 4,000 years since today. So it's no wonder that the wedding ceremony that he was involved with looked a little bit different to perhaps ones that we're used to attending here in the UK. So we shouldn't be surprised to find that his experience was a little bit different from anything that probably we've experienced. Now we're working our way through the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible here at Regent. Uh, we, we, we were working through it over a number of years. We parked it last year. We've picked up again, and Stuart uh, last week looked at uh, Jacob's ladder, Jacob's dream. We've reached chapter 29 this morning where Jacob is the main character, and he'd recently tricked his uh, father. He'd tricked his twin brother, and he'd sort of stolen all the family inheritance and the, the kind of pride of place in the family and his dad's blessing, effectively becoming the heir of the family. He tricked and schemed. He was just a really despicable guy, basically. And as a result, his, his older twin brother, Esau, was really, really mad at him, really, really ticked off. And so Jacob had to run away because Esau was out to kill him. Jacob had to get out because Esau was going to kill him. And so his mother, Rebecca, like a good mother, said, look, you get yourself away. Go and visit your uncle Laban up in the north, my brother, until things calm down. And when things have calmed down, then you can come back and we can carry on being a nice, happy family together. And we read these words uh, in Genesis 27:43. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. And then as he was about to leave, his father, who he just tricked, called him in and he said this to him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padam Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there. 
from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And so Jacob set off from where he was living, which was a place called Beersheba, and he headed off to Haran, which was right up in what is now southeast Turkey. There's a map there, kind of gives you an idea of the journey. It's about 550 miles journey from where he was living in Beersheba right the way up to Haran, which is yeah, modern-day sort of southeast Turkey. On the way, he stayed at a place called Luz, and he changed the name while he was there to Bethel. Uh, Stuart looked at that last week for us as he had this amazing dream, and he saw the angels ascending and descending. So we're going to look now at what happened next in the life of Jacob. He's, had, he's running away from his brother. He has this amazing encounter with God and, and, and this amazing dream. Then we're going to see what happens next. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to it, we're going to read from Genesis 29. And we're going to read verses 1 to 30. Gen- Genesis 29, uh, verses 1 to 30. If you haven't got a Bible handy, don't worry. You can just listen as I read it to you. So Genesis chapter 29, verse 1. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it, because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said. Here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the palace, sorry, all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the, the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban for another 
seven years. Now, if you've never read this story before, it probably seems a little bit bizarre. Even if, like me, you've, been, you've read this story since you were a kid through sort of Sunday school and parents reading it to you, when you read it again, it's a little bit bizarre. It's a little bit strange. Now, Jacob was single and he was 77 years old. That's how old Jacob was when he ran away to his uncles. And we probably tend to imagine that, that Jacob and Esau were sort of 17, 18-year-old young guys and all the rest of it. If you, do the, if you do the chronology and you work back, you discover that Jacob was 77 years old. If you don't believe me, I'll show you afterwards from the chronology. Now, I have no idea why he'd never married. But whatever the reason was, here he was, a single man at 77. So if you're 77 and single, there's hope. That's not this morning's takeaway, by the way. He's 77 years old, and he was running away from his brother and finally hoping to find a wife. And, we read, and we've read here, actually, in the story today, how he found that wife. As he arrived at the well, he met these shepherds and was introduced to Rachel, who was his cousin. Now, we don't know how old Rachel was, but she was certainly a lot younger than Jacob was. And not only was she a lot younger, but she was actually Jacob's first cousin. And if you look at the, this family tree, you can see how Jacob and Rebecca were related. Jacob's mother, Rebecca, was Rachel's uh, father's Lab, uh, uh, Laban's sister. So when they met for the first time, uh, we read these words. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He, he found his cousin. It, it, was, it was a kind of really uh, moving moment for him. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebecca. So she ran and told her father. And as strange and probably kind of odd to us as it seems with this much older guy at the age he was, Jacob fell in love with Rachel, the Bible says, and he wanted to marry her. Verse 18 says this, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said to Laban, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And so Jacob continued to work for his uncle for seven years until he was 84, until he had paid the bride price for Rachel. And it was common in that culture, just as it's common in many cultures still today, where perhaps one family or the other family will pay or will give money uh, in order for the, the bride or the groom uh, to marry. And that's what happened here in this situation. And so we have what seems for us today this kind of slightly bizarre wedding between Jacob and Rachel, only for Jacob to discover in the morning that actually his uncle had tricked him. And the woman he thought he was marrying wasn't the woman he woke up with. Now, that might seem pretty odd to us, but what probably happened was that at whatever kind of ceremony they had, it certainly wouldn't have been like the one uh, at the royal wedding, but whatever kind of ceremony they had, Leah was probably wearing a veil so Jacob couldn't see her face at the actual kind of ceremony. Uh, he, he and the rest of the wedding party was probably a, mostly men drinking, I would imagine, uh, and so he'd probably been drinking all day. And if you add in the likelihood that, please don't take offense if you're in, the, if in your 80s, but at 84, his eyesight maybe wasn't what it was, you can see how this might have happened, how he didn't realize that he woke up with, uh, or that he'd married Leah instead of the wife that he wanted. And so we have this massive irony that Jacob, the trickster, the schemer, this really despicable guy who just kind of wrecked his whole, his whole family life, ends up being the one who has this trick played on him. The schemer becomes the one who is schemed against by his uncle Laban. And because he really wanted to, rap, to marry Rachel and not Leah, he then agrees to work for another seven years 
for his scheming uncle, although he actually got to marry Rachel just a week later. So he marries one sister, the older sister, and then a week later he marries the next sister, but he has to work for another seven years. A little bit odd, perhaps, to us today, I grant you. But here was this great schemer, well and truly stitched up by his uncle Laban. He managed to get 14 years of free work out of his uh, nephew. I'm not sure how much work he did age 84, but anyway, um, he clearly was a very fit guy and he was working away, but stitched up by his uncle and he has two wives. When I phoned my father-in-law 20-odd years ago to ask him if I could marry uh, his daughter, he said to me, which one do you want? (laughs) He had two. He has two. But Laban was uh, deadly serious. He wasn't joking. He wasn't messing around. Verse 27 says this, finish this daughter's bridal week, then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Now, this might seem really odd to us, but it's really important to understand When we read the Bible and when we read narratives like this, what we're reading is an account of what happened, okay? It's not an approval of what's happened. It's not the Bible telling us this is how we're meant to live. God isn't telling us that we're meant to follow this example. God's not approving of what happened. He's not telling us to live the same way, especially when it comes to having two wives who happen to be sisters. God's intention, it's really important to say this, God's intention for marriage right from creation, right up to today, right on into the future, is that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that that marriage is for life. That is God's establishment of marriage. Always will be whatever we try and do with marriage, that is God's pattern for marriage. And what God is doing in recording these events is recording the history of his chosen people and what they did and how they lived. It's not necessarily something that we're meant to follow and copy. God isn't teaching us to live this way. He's just recording for us what happened. And then from that, we can learn great lessons. And the point is that we're meant to learn from their lives, whether they did great things and great successes, or whether they made uh, great mistakes and uh, really made a mess of their lives. Whatever the situations, we can learn from them. So please don't think that the Bible teaches that I'm saying today that it's okay for 84-year-old men to marry sisters who are probably about a third of their age. That's not what this chapter's about. It's recording what happened, but from that we can learn great uh, truths about how uh, God wants us to live and so on. What this chapter is about is about God preserving for us how the people he had chosen to work through and work in, how they responded to him, despite the fact that they were deeply flawed characters. And I think that's fantastic, isn't it? That God doesn't just choose excellent people. He doesn't just choose uh, the really great people in life. God chooses deeply flawed characters, and he works through them and does great things in and through them. And as we look at chapters like this, especially in the Old Testament, we see how they behaved. Sometimes they got it right. Sometimes they got it spectacularly wrong. And the story of Jacob, which starts in Genesis 25 and actually goes right the way through to Genesis 50, and we're going to be following this story, this account, over the next few weeks, is the story of how God chose one man not based upon how good he was, not based upon his achievements, not because he deserved it. God didn't choose him for those reasons. And over the many years of his life, God was at work in Jacob's life, And he was seeking to give him opportunities to change and respond so that he would live God's way and not his own way. Jacob ended up spending 20 years in total living alongside his uncle Laban. He he did the the 14 years for the two daughters, but then he actually lived another six years there before he eventually returned back to his family, in in particular uh, his brother Esau. And we're going to see that in the next few weeks. And the story of those 20 years that we have recorded for us is the story of how God was at work in Jacob's life and how God changed Jacob. 
Jacob, the self-centered schemer, the rat Jacob was, over time becomes a very different man, a very different character from the one that started uh, as we pick up his story. God was at work in his life and through the circumstances of his life. And what Laban did to uh, uh, Jacob was pretty bad, to say nothing of how he treated his daughters. doesn't say much, does it, for how he viewed his daughters. But as far as Jacob's concerned, God turns around this situation and he uses Laban's trickery to teach Jacob a lesson. The schemer becomes the one who is on the end of the scheme. And you know, sometimes God allows a Laban-like character to come into our lives to teach us lessons, to help mold us, to make us more like Jesus. The Jacob that heads back home uh, is a very different Jacob to the one who left home 20 years earlier. And we're going to see that uh, as we look at the accounts in the next few weeks. But you know, sometimes it takes a Laban-like character in our life to knock off some of those sinful edges and sinful characteristics in our lives and to refine us and to give us those opportunities to become more like Jesus. Paul says this in Romans 5, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And it's difficult to rejoice when we're in our sufferings, when we're, when we're going through difficulties and, and, and tests in life. It's difficult to rejoice, even though that's what the Bible says to do. But what the Bible teaches us is that even through difficult and hard times, God is at work in our lives. Even through situations like Jacob was find, found himself in, God is still at work in our lives. So take your outline. On the back of your uh, um, notice sheet, there's an outline. All the verses are on there. And there's, there's things for you to write down. There should be a pen in the seat in front of you. Write this down. God sometimes allows a Laban uh, in our lives to, to mold us and change us. God sometimes allows a Laban in our lives to mold and change us. I don't know if you have a Laban in your life. Maybe right now you can identify and think, yeah, I know I've got a Laban in my life, somebody who is just a pain, someone who makes my life a misery, that, that, that guy in my class at school, or that girl in my office at work, or that person in my family or in my street, somebody who I, just, who I would really rather didn't exist, or I wish God would take out of my life. And maybe God has brought somebody into your life like that. Maybe you have a Jacob in your life, a schemer. Whether it's a Laban or a Jacob, they were both schemers who ruined the lives of others. And, and maybe this morning you're struggling with someone like that at your work, in your family, in your neighborhood, whatever it might be. And you know, sometimes despite our best efforts, we can't get rid of the Laban in our life. We, we try and apply for other jobs and they just don't open up. We, we try and get rid of that person and it just doesn't happen. And the challenge in those circumstances is to try to see what God is trying to teach us. What is God trying to say to us through what might be a really difficult circumstance? Somebody who is just difficult, somebody who is maybe even ruining our lives, somebody who is really difficult and awkward and scheming and, and, and just one of these kind of Laban-like characters. And the challenge in those circumstances is to try to see, what is God teaching me? What is God doing in my life? And how can I respond to that the best way I can? I wonder, is there a Laban in your life at the moment? And if there is, what is God teaching you? What is God trying to, to teach you through that person? You know, sometimes God allows us to be on the receiving end of bad behavior because like, Jake, like Jacob, it causes us to face up to our own bad behavior. And it's always good. Sometimes we protest, don't we, when uh, we're in a situation and we, we feel we're on the wrong end of injustice 
and it's, you know, we, we protest about our situation. But it's good when we're in those circumstances to ask ourselves whether we'd ever cause someone else to face injustice. I can imagine Jacob being outraged at the situation he found himself in. But Jacob was just really, the tables had been turned on him. And what he had done to others, he was now finding himself in. And if we find ourselves in those situations, then as we find ourselves on the receiving end of rough justice, perhaps a Laban-like figure at work or at school or whatever it might be, it's a good opportunity for us to go back and put things right in our past. Maybe there's things that we need to go back and revisit, situations that where we've not behaved as we should have done, or we've not lived as a follower of Jesus would live. And it's an opportunity as we're faced with injustice in our own life, and it brings a mirror into our lives to say, yeah, actually, I need to go back and put that situation right. Sometimes it can't be put right. Sometimes people don't want to know. But as the Bible says, as far as it depends on us, live in peace with everybody. And maybe this morning is an opportunity for us just to look back in our own lives. And whether there's a, a situation or a circumstance where we have dealt roughly with others, where we've handed out injustice to others. And as we sometimes face injustice at the hands of maybe someone like a Laban, someone at school in our class or somebody at work or in the family, it's an opportunity for us to, to look into that mirror and, and to, to respond to that and to go back and to revisit those situations, and to put right, perhaps, wrongs that we've dealt to other people. So write this down. God wants us to face up to and deal with our past. God wants us to, to face up to and deal with our past. It's a good thing to regularly just look at what God is teaching us and showing us in our own lives. Are there situations that we need to go back and put right in the past? Are there people that we've wronged that we need to go and apologize to? relationships that need rebuilding, wrongs that need to be put right. Jacob also had to learn real patience as he waited, firstly for the seven years to marry Rachel, then uh, ended up marrying Leah, and then after discovering he'd been tricked, he had another seven years. And sometimes not only does God allow a kind of Laban-like figure into our lives to knock some of those edges off us, he also leaves us in those unpleasant situations far longer than we would like. It would be great, wouldn't it, if when we prayed that God just removed those difficult people from our lives instantly or removed us from those difficult situations, that he would just respond immediately. That would be so good. But if he did, then in so many cases, we'd lose those opportunities for spiritual growth and spiritual change. Sometimes God allows us to stay in those difficult situations far longer than we would like. And it's sometimes it's not just for a week or a month. Sometimes it's for years and years. And those situations can be incredibly painful and difficult to handle. But as painful as they can sometimes be, as Paul says in Romans 5, suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, Christ-like character. It doesn't mean we shouldn't pray to be removed from those situations or for God to change those circumstances. We should. We should pray big prayers and expect God to move and look in faith for God to, to act. But sometimes God just says you need to stay where you are because I'm doing a work in your life. Jacob was 77 when he left Beersheba, left his family. He was 84 when he got married to Leah. He was 91 when he finished his 14 years. And he was 97 when he went back to his family. 97 when he went back to his family. And as we'll see in a few weeks' time, Jacob still had significant business to do with God. Jacob was 97 when he wrestled with God. 
And God changed his name from Jacob to Israel and he became the father of the nation of Israel. 97 years old. And next week we're going to see how Jacob had 12 sons and those 12 sons will become the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob, who became Israel, arguably had his greatest achievements in life in his 90s. His most significant moment in life, I would argue, was when he was 97, when he went from Jacob to Israel. And I think the key thing that we can learn from this is that whilst children and young people are incredibly important, and it's fantastic to see all you guys here this morning, and you're the future of this church, or the future of the gospel in this, in this region, it's fantastic, and we believe in that, we've invested in that as a church. But nevertheless, you know, we're a very youth-orientated culture, aren't we? And you know what? God is still interested in people who are 77, who are 84, who are 91, and who are 97. God hadn't finished with Jacob when he reached 60. In fact, we barely read anything about Jacob until he's 77. God was just getting started with Jacob when he was in his 70s. Now, I'm on dangerous ground here, but if you are, let's, shall we say, I'm not going to look because this just could go horribly wrong, but if you're over, say, shall we say 60 or 70, God isn't done with you yet. God is not done with you just because you're 70 or 80 or 90. In fact, like Jacob, you may yet still have your most significant days ahead of you. Our culture would say it's the opposite way around. But the Bible, I think, would teach us that you may still yet have your most significant days ahead of you. In fact, like Jacob, you may still be yet to have your most significant years for God. God hasn't finished with you. You still have important things to do and, dare I say, even to learn from God. So write this down. Whatever age you are this morning, God is not finished with me. God is not finished with me. And we're going to do something we don't do very often here. We're going to say this out loud because I think it's just good to reaffirm this and say this about ourselves. We're going to say this together. So whether you are 10 or whether you are in your 90s, God is not done with us. God is not finished with us. So let's say this together. God is not finished with me. Let's say that again. God is not finished with me. Whatever age you are today, especially if you are over 70 or over 80 or over 90, God is not finished with you. What is God doing in your life at the moment? What are you learning? What are you doing for God? You know, retirement is a great gift from God. It's a great time when we can use our time and our money for God. We can serve in a unique way that we can't do until we retire. Retirement is a phenomenal period of life. So if you are in that age, what are you doing for God? What are you learning? What is God doing in and through you? Jacob was a, a schemer, he did some pretty awful things, and he certainly didn't deserve God's love or to be chosen by God to be the father of this nation of Israel. And yet from this schemer would come the family line that 2,000 years later God would chose to be born into when he became a human being. Laura read from us Philippians 2, that though he was God, he was equal to God, he, he didn't consider it something to be grasped after, but he made himself nothing and he became a human being great miracle, mystery of the incarnation. And the family that God chose to, in the person of Jesus, become a human being, was the direct descendant of Jacob and Leah. Jacob, or Israel as he became, was the direct human ancestor of Jesus. 
And in Jacob's life and in Jacob's marriages and his children, we see God's grace at work. God treating people in a way they don't deserve. And we see God redeeming situations. Jacob found himself tricked into marrying Leah. But Leah knew that Jacob didn't want to be married to her. Look at verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And for all of history, Leah would become known as the sister who wasn't very good looking and that Jacob didn't love. Imagine that's what she's known for, for for thousands of years. I can't imagine what Leah felt like. I can't imagine she felt great. I'm sure she was was obviously in on the whole scheme. But But when Jacob woke up the next morning and discovered that she wasn't Rachel, look at what Jacob says. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Leah was under no illusions about how Jacob felt about her or about having been married to her. Seems that he did have some feelings towards her, but not in the way that he felt about Rachel. Look at verse 30. His love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Leah always knew she was second best in Jacob's life at best. Must have been a really strange life for her, and it's difficult to really guess because we don't know. That we're so culturally removed from that. But then look at Genesis 29, 35, and I'll try not to steal too much of Rob's thunder from next week, but look at what it says. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. And it was through this marriage to Leah that Jacob's son, Judah, was born, the second son from that relationship. And it was from Judah that Jesus descended. It was Judah's family that in time would become the royal family of Israel. It would be that tribe of Israel. David and Solomon and all the other kings that followed were from the tribe of Judah. We sang the song we sang just before I got up to preach. The lion of the tribe of Judah. That's one of the names of Jesus in the Bible. The lion is a, is a kind of picture of royal power. He's the lion, the king of kings, the king of the tribe of Judah. The greatest king, greater even than David. And, and Leah was married to Jacob in the most dodgy of circumstances, to say the least. And we can only guess how she must have felt or what life was like for her. And yet out of the shame, out of the embarrassment, and out of playing second fiddle to Rachel all her life, her better looking and her more loved sister, God did something fantastic. Because from Jacob and Leah's marriage, not Rebecca's marriage, but Jacob and Leah's marriage, came Judah. And Judah's greatest descendant was the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who was God and yet chose to become human, chose to be born into this family line. Jesus, the lion of Judah, would ultimately go to the cross and there on the cross would suffer and die, not just physically but spiritually at the hands of God the Father as he became our sin, as Jesus took all our sins, all our wrongdoings, and as God then punished Jesus instead of punishing you and me. And as a result, if we put our faith in him and make him the king of our lives, we can have our sins forgiven. We can have a relationship with God and we can have eternal life. See, God makes a habit of taking the least attractive, the least loved people, whether it was Jacob or whether it was Leah, and doing great things through them. God even turns around bad and sinful situations like Jacob and Leah's marriage and Jacob's subsequent marriage to Rachel and his relationships with the two servant girls. Jacob's home life was a bit of a mess, to say the least. 
And yet out of that mess came the nation of Israel. And so many of the great characters of the Old Testament that we look to and learn from. And of course, ultimately, the Lord Jesus himself. And maybe today you look back on your life or even your life right now. And you can see a lot of Jacob in your life, a lot of Jacob in you. Character traits that you don't like. Character traits that are perhaps ugly and unattractive. You know, God wants to use you to do great things for him. Despite how others may perceive you, despite how you may perceive yourself. If you'll let him work in you and through you. Maybe today you see yourself a little bit like Leah. You don't feel you're very attractive or, or popular or successful. And you wonder how God could love you and how he can use you. Let me tell you today that God loves you with a passion. If you ever doubt just how much God loves you, look at the cross. And there Jesus says, this is how much I love you. And if you'll let him, God can do great things in you. And he'll do great things through you. So write that on your outline this morning. God wants to do great things in me and great things through me. God wants to do great things in me and you and great things through you. And maybe today you've made a mess of your life. Maybe your life is not what you'd have liked it to have been. And there are things in your life that you wish you could change or alter. The wonderful thing with God is that he can even forgive and redeem our messes and our mistakes. Even failed marriages and sinful relationships if we'll let him. Let's just take a moment to pause and reflect on what we've said today. Maybe there's a Laban in your life that God has put there and is using to shape you. Is God calling you to face up to your past and put things right from it? Maybe you feel like your time is past, that you're too old. Remember that God is not done with you yet. And no matter who or what you are, God wants to do great things in you and through you if you'll hand your life over to him. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes and just take a moment or two to reflect. What is God saying to us this morning? What is God saying to you this morning?